So, in the last few weeks we've been talking about uh, Jesus impacting the world around him through his miracles and how he's uh, reached out to people. Um, last week we talked about how Jesus uh, touched the, the life of the centurion's servant, a leper who came to him and said, are you willing that you, I might be healed? And he said, of course I'm willing. And how he uh, reached out to Peter's mother-in-law when he wasn't being asked. She was, you know, it's one of those things of she's just sick with flu. It's, too, it's not a big deal. And Jesus actually initiates just healing her because he's always kind of saying, I'm doing what my father's telling me to do. And I don't know about you, but you might have things that you think, well, that's not important. And the father seems to think everything is important. Somebody said to me, I think, uh, you know, God's too busy. But too busy is not in his vocabulary because he he's not busy at all. Busy doesn't, isn't who God is. God is. And so he has this miraculous way of being able to have intimate conversations with everybody who's ever been created. Figure that one out. And he's never too busy for anything that's on your heart. And so the, the, when Jesus, this whole thing of Advent and God coming among us is, is something that's very powerful. A lot of, we live in a culture where, you know, we live in a beautiful part of the world. So a lot of people say, I, I just worship God in nature. And the thing about nature is you're going into nature to escape from the everyday life that you live because it's too stressful, right? So I, I need some space, I need some inspiration, so I go and I worship God in nature. The trouble is God says, I'm in nature, but I'm not in nature. That's you like walking around my garden saying, I've come to visit John, but I never actually see you. And so God says really to us through Advent, he says, if you think nature is beautiful, wait till you meet me. Nature is just the front door into the arms of the Father. And so when Jesus was born and when he, 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 he lived and he began to do his ministry, he began to show people who the God of nature is. And the most significant thing, one of the most significant things that he he revealed was that the God of nature is not an it. A God of nature is actually a personal, loving Father. To, today, what we want to look at is, is, is the whole area of Jesus with his disciples just before he went to the cross, really, um, in John's Gospel. Let me just give you a quick overview that I sometimes do just because I don't, I don't like presuming everybody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, you have the Old Testament, which is, the, which is the, from creation through God's dealings with Israel as a promised land, as a, as a promised land people, um, God dealing with humanity and the rebellion of humanity and the struggle of humanity. Many people look at the Old Testament and say, why is God so cruel? Why is God allowed this and that and the other? But the Old Testament is also about a people who insist on being their own gods. And so a lot of the violence and a lot of the cruelty in the Old Testament is, is, is what happens when God is not king. The thing that we do is we blame God for the things we don't like, but we want the freedom. We want it all. And, uh, you know, so all, all, the, all the hardships and all the brokenness and all the violence and all the fighting is what happens to human beings when God is not around. Left to our own resources, we become ugly. And in many instances, you would say it just didn't work. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, it's about 
God so loved the world that he came into that broken, ugly world, rebellious world, and said, I am not giving up on you. Even if you've given up on me, even if you've behaved abominably, even if I should actually destroy you and send you all to hell, my love is so deep that I cannot do that. I cannot send my kids to a place they don't even know exists, which is apart from me and it's hell forever. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Sometimes Christians talk as if it's a great thing. They're going to hell. Or they, This is the only time you'll hear me speaking about the end times. I can't wait for the end times. And God doesn't want the end times. I think God, the, the worst thing in God's sort of schedule is the end times. Because with the end times comes judgment. And with judgment comes some will not be with him. And so he's going to eke that out the last possible moment because he wants as many as possible to be saved. That's the heart of the Father. The heart of legalistic Pharisaical Christians is judgment and condemnation. And Jesus said himself, I didn't come to condemn the world. And what we're talking about today is this totally crazy love of God that is way beyond anything I could ever accomplish or you could. And so Jesus you know, he did all these miracles, John tells us. I'll just sort of say, so, that was one sentence. Um, the New Testament is about God coming in Jesus into the world, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels, good news about this person, Jesus. So I always encourage people, if you're going to read the Bible, start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Please don't start with Genesis because it won't take you long before you're bored out of your tree and then you'll give up. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are about, the, about Jesus. Acts is about the beginning of the church. It's written by Luke. Matthew is written by a Jewish guy for the Jewish people. John, uh, Mark is probably written by Peter, recited by Peter because you know, Peter couldn't read or write. And it's, very, it's, very, it's the shortest gospel. It's the one that... And then, and then, it's not very um, poetic. It's like Peter probably wasn't that great a public speaker. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. He doesn't color in. Luke was written by a doctor. Uh, Luke was a doctor who wrote his gospel, his uh, interpretation of Jesus, or the reports about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He wrote that for a Gentile, the non-Jewish group. So in in Luke's gospel, you have explanations, and you have things that are sensitive to the non-Jewish sector that they're reaching out to because what's really important is that you're sensitive to the people you're talking to and then uh, John who we're talking about today was the youngest disciple who was very close to Jesus he talks about himself being the, the disciple Jesus loved and he, he, he probably lived the longest and he was an old man he died naturally uh, he, he went to Patmos which is an island I visit is beautiful um, and he also read Revelation at the end of the, the New Testament, which is quite a complicated visionary thing that some people spend a lot of time in. Patmos was better than Revelation as far as I'm concerned. But Anyway, John is the kind of uh, poet. So John, when he wrote his gospel, he knew that Matthew, Mark and Luke already existed. He probably had them in front of him. So when John writes, he's not trying to give an, a, a historical account in sequence. He's not trying to do 
um, tell a story again like that. John is an older man. He's now reflected on this re- his own personal relationship with Jesus. He's reflected on the beginning of the church. He's reflected on what's happened in the church over 30, 40 years. As an older man, he's beginning to write about the meaning. And so he starts saying, this is what... So that's why he starts by saying, in the beginning, God... And the light came into the world. He speaks with symbols. He speaks with metaphors. He speaks in ways that try to give meaning to the fact that Mark, for instance, Peter could never do that. Peter would probably scratch his head and say, John, just say that again in English. But they need each other because Peter speaks to one group. And so John speaks with his layers of meaning. And we'll see that today in, in, in what we're going to look at. I hope it's helpful sometimes just to get a bit of background. Just before Jesus has this time with his disciples in John 12:37 says even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence they still n- would not believe in him uh, there's this there's this amazing ability in human beings that no matter what happens they still not believe um, and Jesus did these miracles all over the place we've talked about it and said well if he did miracles in our day we would believe and we probably wouldn't some would and some wouldn't. And he says in this passage in, in, in um, twelve eleven, he says, I haven't come to, into this world to judge the world. I've come to save it. What the Father told me to say is what I do. If anyone hears my voice but doesn't keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. So everything Jesus did was because his father was leading him to be the revelation of the goodness of God on earth as in heaven. And lots of us rejoice in the message of God so loved the world that he forgives my sin. And lots of us rejoice in the message of I'm now a son and a daughter with a new identity in Jesus. And that's very, very powerful, very, very important. And we need to keep on talking about that. But what John is doing in chapter 13 is he's beginning to go deeper into what it means. And if you want to sum up what I'm going to say, God says to you today, uh, put your feet up. Put your feet up. But it doesn't mean rest and do nothing. It means something else. Because just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. This is John now writing, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the, en- to the end. One of the hallmarks of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and in a Christian is not what you believe, but what you do. Jesus did not come to make believers. He came to co- make disciples. Believers are people who believe all kinds of things. They just don't do much. So you know what you actually deeply believe by how you live. So Ev was reminding me on on Wednesday, I've often said this, if you want to know what somebody really values, look at their calendar and look at their bank statement. Where you spend your money and where you spend your time is a reflection of what you value. And it's not a judgment, it's just an observation. And somebody said this, um, there is... Great power in example. It is hard to improve if we have no other model than ourselves to follow. Albert Schweitzer, the French theologian, philosopher and physician said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. 
More depends on your walk than on your talk. What you practice than what you preach. What you do than what you say. What people see is far more important than what they hear. People do what people see. John Maxwell writes, 89% of what people learn comes through visual stimulation. 10% through audible stimulation and 1% through the other senses. What they hear, they understand. What they see, they believe. So if people aren't hearing what we're saying, they might be watching what we're doing, which is awkward at times. That's why it's so important as Christians to recognize that we need to give expression and we need to be not defensive when what we do doesn't measure up to what we say. We don't deny it and we don't try and excuse it. We just say, well, there's hope for you. We're both a work in progress. So I declare things that I'm still learning how to live under. I don't have to say I can't do anything till I'm perfect and I'm a great example of that among you. I declare things that are from Jesus that I and we are still asking him to make real so that we do become what we say we believe. And disciples are those who are wanting to be the message, not just believe in something. Does that make sense? And what Jesus is doing now uh, with his disciples and what he's done all the time or what he's doing particularly now is he's kind of saying, watch me. He is facing the most crushing time of his life. He's facing the most... he, He does not want to go to the cross. Jesus has no desire to go to the cross. He's not saying... Father, one day I'm going to wake up and go, "Ah, let's go to crucifixion. He never is going to wake up and say, I want to be crucified. He's never going to wake up and say, I want to be flogged. He's never going to wake up and say, I want to be in a place, Father, where you abandon me. It's never, ever going to happen. But John says, now at the Passover, and he says that with a purpose. The Passover is what? Passover is when the lamb was slain and the people were set free from Egypt. The doorframe of the houses were painted with the blood. So when John says it's the Passover, he's saying Jesus is getting ready to be the Passover lamb, the fulfillment of what, it, what, was, what happened in Egypt to set the captives free, the slaves free, is now going to happen through Jesus universally for all mankind, not just for the Hebrews. And the Hebrews, of course, were a little bit like the Christians sometimes. They go, oh, I thought it was all for us. And God said, no, it's much bigger than that. You're just a little first visual aid of what I have in mind for everyone. That's good news. And what John says is he, he loved them to the end. He showed them the full extent of his love. This is what love looks like. And this is what a disciple looks like. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Understand that Jesus knew that all authority and all power was given to him. So he could have spoken words that would have changed things, the atmosphere and everything else. One of the most powerful things with people in power is what they do when they have that power. The testimony of humanity is that people with power get corrupted and they misuse it. And they use it to their own ends. People with office, people with title, people with influence, people with money, whatever it is, 
tends to begin to erode the character of the person. They carry it badly. One of the reasons that God doesn't release more on his people is because our characters can't bear the weight of what we want him to give us. That is why he calls us to work out our relationships and work out our lives on earth as in heaven so that we actually become people he can entrust with more. You want to see spiritual breakthrough? Pay attention to what's going on inside you and me. It's just the way it works. Jesus, as John describes him, he knows he has all this power and what does he do? He does not do anything with that power. Because with, if he used that power right now, it would mean that the people he was serving would never come to the fullness of a revelation of who God is or be forgiven of their sin. But they had no clue about that. And so one of the tensions today is that most of the time, I just want to encourage you, you and me, we have very little clue of what God is actually doing. We're in the room with him and we're saying, do this, do this, do this. And he's saying what he will say to Peter in a minute, you do not understand right now. Be encouraged. Trust in God's faithfulness, not in your ability to work it out. I have so many questions to ask about that. But I've kind of given up now. And that's what faith is, by the way. I mean, faith is believing in God when nothing around you makes any sense. Faith is not, I believe in Jesus. That's a statement. Faith is worked out in a lifestyle. A statement of faith is a statement of faith. Meaning, I'm going to jump off this platform, but if I never jump off this platform, I don't believe what I've just stated. Faith is worked out, as James says, works without faith is useless. In other words, if you don't believe in God, or you do believe in God, but you don't do anything, you don't have faith. You just have belief system. And what Jesus is going to do through this washing of the feet is say, this is what servanthood looks like. This is what the King of Kings does on earth. So with all this power that he knew he had, he didn't take hold of it anyway. He, what does he do? He, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Probably one of the most awkward moments in the disciples' journey. Listen to John, the multi-layers of the way John speaks. When Jesus got up from the table and he took off his outer clothing, is John saying, Jesus in heaven, with all his glory, took off his glorious clothing and became human. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he knelt at his disciples' feet to serve them. That is the heart of the Father for you and for me. If you ever think God is angry with you, if you ever think God doesn't do anger, He doesn't need to. He's angry with sin, but He's never angry with you. He's actually just trying to get alongside you. Anger is a sign of weakness. Anger is a sign of defeat. Anger is a sign of immaturity. Anger never, ever starts from heaven. Anger doesn't happen in heaven. It's like sickness. There's a righteous anger that means passion's rising up and something is wrong. But what we do with that shows whether it's from God or from somewhere else. And Jesus could have been really angry. I would have been really angry because Judas is here and I know what Judas is up to and he's about to betray us. And God still reaches out to him. Why is it awkward? Because in the Jewish culture, in the culture of that day, they were walking with sandals all around the place. They were walking, their feet got dirty. 
They reclined at the tables to eat, so your feet were probably visible. So one of the things that a hospitality demanded was when he went into a house, there was usually a, a water basin at the doorway and you would wash your own feet or a slave would wash your feet. And so the interesting thing in this account is the wash basin was there, the water was there, the towel was there, and the disciples were there, and nobody was washing feet. And Jesus noticed it. And so he got up, and as soon as he got up and put the towel around and he began to wash, they were all thinking, oh, I wish I should, I should have done that. And he goes around and he washes their feet, and there's probably absolute silence and awkwardness. Embarrassment revelation of my own selfishness, revelation of I'm not going to stoop and wash my, wash my brother's feet. How humiliating. A slave does that. And in our culture, a slave does that. And Jesus took on, his, on himself the form of a slave and said, nothing is too demeaning for me to serve you. And of course you can't get through Peter without Peter mouthing off because it's who Peter is. It's who God loves in Peter, but it gets him into trouble. But at the same time, God has used Peter's mouth to help us all be encouraged by the fact that we are so like him. And Peter says to Jesus, uh, with genuine awkwardness, and I don't know whether it's humility, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies, you do not realize now what I am doing, but you will, later you will understand, which he obviously said a lot to Peter. You don't understand what I'm doing. And Peter says, well, I understand this is really awkward, and you shouldn't be at my feet, I should be at your feet, and you shouldn't be washing my feet, I shouldn't. And Jesus kind of says, well, you should have thought of that, but I did first, so shut up and deal with it. I always like throwing this kind of thing in, in these situations. Peter wasn't comfortable this wasn't feeling good for him. Just be encouraged. When God is working with you, it's not always comfortable. Peter probably said, I wasn't expecting this when I came in today. God's timing is not always our timing. And it was in front of everybody. Lord, if you're going to do this, let's do this in private. You see, God works at a much broader scale, much deeper scale where he's going, what I'm doing in you is what I'm going to do through you. But you're going to have to learn how to handle this awkwardness. And so Peter doesn't just take what Jesus says and stop there. Uh, he says, no, Lord, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. So Jesus didn't back off and said, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Okay, okay, I get it. Sometimes what God has for us, he will push through whether we like it or not. And he will usually do it through other people, which makes it worse. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. He's not messing around. I think Peter then looked at him and went, ooh. He'd seen that look before. Get behind me, Satan. There are times where God might just put down the hammer and say, enough. We don't want to find those times. I experienced it once. I never want to experience it again and I'm not going to go into it now. It's a dark and ugly place. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet but my hands and my head as well. And Peter, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. They're not every one of you. I just want to say this is too. Jesus is talking about 
that their presence with him, and ultimately John is talking also about baptism, is once you have given your life to Jesus, you are clean. But Peter sitting there didn't feel clean. And sometimes we need to make declarations over, over ourselves because what we feel is not necessarily the truth. You are clean. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross and he raised you from the dead. You are clean. Well, I don't feel clean. Too bad. You are clean. But this other part is, in other words, you kind of go, if I've been a good boy today or a good girl, then I'm going to heaven. If I died right now, relax. God is faithful and he has called you and he has cleaned you. But the feet were dirty because the feet is where heaven touches the earth in human form. And that earth is dirty. That earth is sinful. That earth is broken. So God's saying, really, your feet will need to be washed many times. Put your feet up. Which means... Let's acknowledge together our need for cleansing. Let's acknowledge our need for forgiveness. Let's acknowledge that we need to wash one. What, what's happened in the church, unfortunately, this, this very cultural practice has become a symbolic event in a church which really doesn't have much meaning to us. You see, it's not the issue really of washing the feet. It's just what needs to be done. What in our culture, what in the moment is appropriate where I am able to say there's nothing too demeaning for me to do to serve you. There is nothing that is beyond the limit. You see, for me, personally, the hallmark of the Holy Spirit isn't how you worship. And it isn't how you talk. It's how you serve. And if you do serve, your worship will be great. In fact, they infect each other. So, you know, one, I don't know where one starts and one ends. But the hallmark of the Holy Spirit is the humble serving heart. And so Jesus says to them, after they've had this very awkward encounter, He says, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. We sing a lot of songs about Lord, Lord, I surrender. We sang it a lot as a lovely song. It's cool to sing. All of the songs are cool to sing, aren't they? And give you goosebumps, and you can feel the presence of the Lord. And then you go out and kick your neighbor. You go, well, that was cool. Or whatever we do. Our feet get dirty real quick, which is really good news to hear. There's a quick place to find healing and forgiveness every day. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you recite them every day. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed when you do them. That is a disciple. A disciple is one who does. By your love and the expression of your love, you will be known. How do, you, how do you sort of hear this today? Is this depressing? It's, it's not meant to be depressing. It's meant to be actually amazing. Firstly, it's amazing because the more you allow God in Jesus to 
cleanse and to heal and to embrace you on your best day and on your worst day. Before, the more we get to understand God's love, the deep, deep love of Jesus looks like something. It looks like washing your feet. It looks like going to the cross for you so that the rest of your body is clean and the washing of feet is the daily working out your salvation in fear and trembling. And the washing of your feet is the acknowledgement in front of others that I'm still a work in progress, that my feet are a bit like clay, that the things I say and the things I do sometimes contradict and I'm sorry. And we're learning how to be a community that says I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry I didn't get it right. I'm sorry that what you saw in me didn't sound like what I wanted it to sound like. And so a place for spiritual breakthrough is humility. It's where real people begin to cradle dirty feet of one another and say, that's okay, let's make this clean. You can't wash one another's, you can't wash your own feet. We want to, but actually washing feet is about restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness and mutual understanding. It's all the relational stuff. And out of that, I'm absolutely convinced that out of that will come the greatest spiritual breakthrough we've ever seen. The problem is we have to deal with the washing feet, the the, the stuff on the earth to access that in heaven that Jesus has won for us. Because God the Father said, look at Jesus, look at what he's doing. In his most desperate time, he was taking care of them and preparing them for something they still had no understanding of. And sometimes, as we walk together, we're going to be doing things that we don't understand. Why is this happening? Why do we have to do this? Why? Why? And there's part of the why that's important, which just says, you do not understand, just do what you know to be true. Later, Peter in uh, 1 Peter 2, I'm drawing to an end here, when, you know, in Peter's letters, He writes, and you know, the same Peter who was so rebellious and so opinionated, I mean, he gets pretty pretty eloquent about servanthood. 1 Peter 2, verse uh, 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And what he's just saying is whether if your circumstance is even terrible and it's unjust, because you're my servant, submit. And we could go into that, but there's no time. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I think this world is hungry to see Christians doing good in a way that silences them. Rather than Christians condemning the world, pointing fingers, being holier than thou, just serve, do good. And part of what you're doing in that youth ministry is the expression of that. We're going to give you gifts. We're going to invite you. We're going to take you to places before you know what it is or before you deserve it and other people will pay. That's all part of it. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter's writing about how to live life as an expression of the love of Jesus that, that washes feet. So I want to suggest as we go today, we reflect on we're not just sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Paul opens his letters and he never says that. He says, I am a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus. What I have is not my own anymore. It was bought for a price. 
And Jesus was known in Isaiah and other places as a servant king. One of the great things we boast about is Jesus is not like anyone else. He came into this world and he became human and he lived a life of servanthood. So what am I? I want to be a servant son and you a servant daughter. It's not just enough to go, he's made me a son and daughter. It's what kind of son and daughter am I? If, I'm, if I've got the DNA of Jesus in me, if he is my father, if the father is in me and the Holy Spirit is in me, then the hallmark of that will be servanthood. I'm not looking for position. I'm just saying, how can I serve? And in my serving, the positions will actually come. He wants disciples, not just believers. And the only thing that is guaranteed in this thing is that we're going to get dirty feet. So the good news is that we cannot be surprised when our feet get dirty and the good news is that we have a place to wash and we're in a community that wants to wash each other's feet. Let's stand and let's just ask him to make that real.